welcome to another episode of NBRI, the new business and retail insights from the Center for Retailing Studies, Mays Business School, Texas A&M University. I'm your host, Venki Schenker, Director of Research and Coleman Chair, Professor of Marketing. It's my distinct honor to welcome our guest today, Dr. Marnik DeKempe, a Research Professor of Marketing and Head of the Marketing Department at Tilburg University, the Netherlands and also the Professor of Marketing at Catholic University Leuven, Belgium. He's won multiple mess paper awards in leading marketing journals, as well as two long-term impact awards for papers published in the Journal of Marketing. In 2018, he was awarded an honorary doctorate from the University of Hamburg in Germany for his lifetime contributions to marketing research and education. He's a recipient of the AMA Marketing Strategy SIG Mahajan Award for Lifetime Contribution to Marketing Strategy Research, and the EMAC Distinguished Marketing Scholar Award, a Lifetime Achievement Award granted by the European Marketing Academy. Marnik has served as the Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Research and Marketing, the leading European marketing journal. He has been or is currently an Associate Editor of several leading marketing journals, he was an academic trustee with the Marketing Science Institute and is now an academic trustee with iMark. Both these institutions connect academics with practitioners to enable managerially impactful research. Marnik has a PhD in marketing from the University of California at Los Angeles. Welcome, Marnik, uh, for joining me in this conversation today. How have you been coping with thank the... You, thank you very uncertain COVID-19 situation in Europe? Well, uh, for, for foremost and most important, uh, my family and loved ones are healthy and fine. So that's the most important thing. Uh, uh, professionally, uh, it, it has actually been now six months since I have been able to go to the office. Uh, because wow. first we, we had a prolonged lockdown. Uh, then, given that I live in Belgium, work in Holland, then there were restrictions of crossing the border. And now uh, we can go to the office with a small group, but I give priority to my junior colleagues who uh, may have a, a higher need or, uh, of being together and working with their co-authors. Because I think it's, it's, it's a very difficult time if, if you're working on projects and if you're very early in your career. That's very nice of you, and thank you for coping up with these difficult times. But this is, doesn't seem to have uh, stopped your research because you've been publishing at a, a tremendous pace, uh, really high-quality stuff. So congratulations on that. Uh, I did describe to you the usual way, but I would like you to describe yourself in maybe five words or less, uh, maybe five phrases. How would you best describe okay, yourself? Okay, I... Well, it's, it's hard to describe yourself in five words, uh, but I think I, I would first of all say that I'm fairly driven. If, if I want to, to figure something out, I I'm basically go a long way to try to find an answer that satisfies me. The other two things is that I think I'm, I'm a fairly curious person, and meaning that if I observe certain things in the marketplace, and that, that's also why the retailing domain is such a fascinating domain because we have all considerable uh, domain knowledge being customers ourselves, is if, if I observe something that contradicts what we have been teaching for years in our, in our classroom, then I basically want to figure out what, what, what's going on. And then the final and, and third characteristic, I, I think I really like my independence. And that's what I like so much in being an academic researcher is that you basically can study what you find interesting and there's not someone else who says you have to study this uh, and i think that those those would be the the, the three main Excellent. descriptors of me as a researcher very good so if i were to rephrase it persistence which you are very well known in doing research in uh, and experiential curiosity uh, and uh, independence. So these three describe uh, Marnik de Kemp uh, as the individual and a professional. Thank you very much. Um, you've come a very, very long road. You've published so well in so many different domains. Uh, give us a glimpse of your research journey. How did you move after your PhD and how did you 
move across different domains and uh, the twists and turns that you experience it'd be great for us to know okay uh i i think research wise in in terms of the topic i see myself a bit as say an applied econometrician mm -hmm. uh, who studies uh interesting marketing problems that have a high managerial relevance and that happen to often be in, in the domain of retailing. And just to, to illustrate how, how I got started in my, in my PhD, I basically introduced to, to the marketing field the notion of vector autoregressive models, and you, you already used the term, Venki, uh, persistence modeling, which is basically an approach to, uh, look, to quantify the long-term impact of marketing activities. And in a nutshell, the underlying idea there is that if a company or a brand uh, does a certain marketing activity, think a promotion, what can happen is that consumers, because of the promotion, they buy the product. So you see a sales spike. But in the coming periods, they may first use up what they have in their fridge, so you see a post-promotion dip. However, those customers that initially tried your product may like it, and start to repeat by after their inventory has been depleted. The manager may observe that, gee, if I do a promotion, my sales go up, so they do an additional promotion. Your competitors may see that this is successful, and they may also start to do promotions in order to try to gain your customers back. As a consequence, and that's the, the argument in, in, the, in that whole persistence uh, modeling approach, is that if you really want to give credit to the initial promotion, of how successful it has been, that you should also take into account that chain reaction of events that, that follow it. Now, uh, the modeling approach uh, that, that was used for that, and that's why I myself an applied econometrician, in the sense that I will not be the person that develops a new test status or the person that develops a new estimation procedure. But what we did is to translate concepts that had become popular in economics and finance and translate it to the marketing domain. And then most importantly, what we did is applied that approach to thousands of brands, thousands of promotions across hundreds of categories in order to start to figure out under what circumstances do promotions work and under what circumstances do they work better and under what circumstances do they not work. And, and, and I like to, to, to tell a short story about a presentation that I gave to a group of several hundred managers. And I said, look, in our research, we find that third, only 30% of the uh, promotions are actually revenue enhancing, let alone profit enhancing. Who believes that? Everyone was raising their hands. And then my second question is, the, the last promotion that you did, was it successful? And everyone raised their hand that their promotion was very successful, even though they believed that in total only 30% works. And so what we tried then to find out is in a more concentrated market, in a market where private labels are more successful, in a market uh, where the, the national brands do more advertising, are promotions more or less successful there? Then doing that, that analysis, we, we, one, one of the things that, that really jumped out was that the impact of those promotions, but we found the same thing for, for new product introductions, for advertising, was very different for national brands, manufacturers versus for retailers, or for national brands versus private label. And then we started uh, to think of why, why could that be the case? And this uh, basically was the onset of, of a of my curiosity on how do those national brand manufacturers and private labels, the retailers, how do they interact with one another? Is there a power shift? Um, under what conditions can they collaborate? Under what conditions can you create win-win situations and, and so forth? And once you're in, into that, that route, also then uh, having good doctoral students who come also with ideas in that domain and having access to good, good data Given, given my connections with AMARC and GFK, basically leads, leads from one project uh, to, to the to other, the other. Okay. in the domain of, of manufacturing retailer interface. That's fascinating because you started with uh, a mastery of time series methods 
that you are bringing from finance and accounting into marketing. And that led you to really discover that the impact of promotions, advertising, new product introduction, et cetera, short and long-term uh, was a ripe area. And while doing that, you also discovered there are some asymmetry between national brands and private labels. And then you started digging deeper and look at all the interplays, which is very amenable to some kind of a time series analysis because you've got so many different variables at play, so many dependent variables, so you could analyze them. But what happened, you, I also noticed that you started working on uh, problems relating to business cycles, right? For example, you started looking at recessions versus uh, uh, high economic growth periods. And that also started a series of uh, papers that came out of your research. So tell us something about that journey. Well, for that journey, I, I, I have to give credit to my doctoral student at the time, Barbara Adelaide because she came up with the idea that, hey, there, there seems to be uh, uh, some business press articles that make uh, claims about the impact of the recession on private label success. So the, the private labels are, are, are back there. And so uh, she gave me one or two papers on, on the method and asked, um, do you think there's something in here? And I started reading about this and started to get really, really excited about this. Because what you, what you noticed is that there were tons, well, not tons, but several business press reports that made all kinds of claims about the impact of the business cycle on national brands, what they should be doing. Uh, and, and none of that was basically substantiated with, with solid empirics. So what we then, then did initially was uh, try to collect uh, data, which we needed to span several decades because, well, if given that, say, a typical business cycle lasts between two and eight years, if you want to have a couple of business cycles in your data, you need a couple of decades of data. And uh, what we then basically uh, argued or found was that, that not that surprising, uh, that uh, private labels behaved counter-cyclical. If the economy goes down, private labels go up. And that, that was fair, fairly expected, but it's always nice to that your to first finding research, uh, yeah. supports common sense. Right. Okay. But, but what we then found is that uh, that dependency is asymmetric. So mm -hmm. if, if there's a crisis, uh, an economic crisis, that private label share rises very rapidly. While if it goes, uh, if the economy improves, then they, the national brands regain some ground, but this goes at a much slower pace. Now, th that's already much more interesting. And then the, the third thing got, made us even more exciting in that we could um, uh, show uh, empirically that a significant chunk of the people or of that increase was basically uh, very sticky and stayed with the private labels. So if you have uh, a succession of recessions, each time the national a lot. brands yeah. lose some ground and they never recover it. So they each time stabilize at the lower plateau. And then there's the next crisis and that, that repeats. And then- in yeah, That's the, a fascinating the, discovery, yeah. Yeah. And is it mainly because- Of course, in, Sorry, uh, I was going to say, is it something specific to Europe where the share of private label and the role of private labels are much higher than in the U.S.? Or do you think it, uh, it would uh, hold across? No, this is a common phenomenon. Common. Uh, in, in some other paper, we, we also looked, uh, well, then, then in, in the discussion section and the reviewers brought it up, is, is, is this something that the, the managers can do something about that? And right. so in a follow-up paper, we looked at how do national brand manufacturers and retailers react during a recession and an expansion. And then what, what, what we basically found was that a big part of that uh, drop for the national brand manufacturers during the recession is due to the way they behave. Namely, they cut back on their advertising, they cut back on their innovations, um, and, and because of that, they are basically opening Losing the door ground to for private labels. The, yeah. Yeah. And then coming back to your question, we, we repeated that analysis um, across uh, more than 30 different countries. And this was a very consistent finding is that in those countries 
where national brand manufacturers cut back more on advertising, cut back more on some of those other activities, is where the private labels grow more during those recession periods. So this is not a European phenomenon. This is a, a, basically a global phenomenon. That's exciting to know. And then I noticed that you also moved on to analyze product harm crisis, right? Uh, we you also started looking at what is the impact when there are recalls, for example, food recalls, and you look at multiple industries in several of your papers. So share us something about how you started working on it and what kind of insights you derived out of those. Um, I, I actually, this, this is again, most of those projects sometimes start coincidentally. And um, I, I was a VAR modeler. Uh, as we, we our persistence model as we started out in the beginning. And my good friend Harald van Heerde gave a talk where he used another methodology. And I asked tons of questions during his presentation and he claimed his method was better. I claimed that my method was better. And then after a while, um, uh, we came across that problem of a product harm crisis that I initially started to work on with my method. And I must admit it didn't work very well. And so I contacted Harold and we st uh, started working together on that. And so this was the case of, of a salmonella poisoning in peanut butter uh, where several people died. And what we basically were able to, to show is that during a product harm crisis, there is much more going on than what managers typically think in the sense of uh, losing market share, losing sales, uh, losing right. reputation. What they also, Basically, they, they, they have uh, multiple jeopardies that they face. They become more sensitive to uh, price attacks of their competitors. Their own effectiveness of their advertising drops. They become more price sensitive. So basically, even if the crisis is over, if the managers want to recover from that, they have to do much more extra effort to do that uh, because the effectiveness of their instruments have also been, been jeopardized. And then, then coming back to your, to your earlier question is we, we could show that in one case. And that was, it was interesting. We published that, et cetera. But then we started to wonder, is this always the case? And so we, we collected data on more than 60 uh, different product harm crises in multiple countries and started to look for empirical generalizations. Uh, which is something that I very often try to achieve in, in my research is to replicate across uh, many different instances, many different brands, many different crises in this case, not only because it, 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 it's, it gives us some more confidence that this is a, a repeatable or generalizable pattern, but then you can also start to look at contingency factors. In that right. case, uh, the, the, the impact is higher or lower. And what we, for example, then also could bring to the table in terms of managerial uh, recommendations is that uh, different, strat different recovery strategies should be followed depending on whether or not the brand was to blame for, for the crisis, but also how much publicity it received in, in, in the right. press. And so depending on uh, what setting you were facing, that in some cases you needed to increase your price and drop your advertising. In other settings, it was better to do just the opposite so that we could, again, give managers some concrete recommendations in that particular situation you face. You may want right. to do this or you may want to do this. Yeah, I, I love that about your research, the hallmark of your research is you always strive for empirical generalization and uh, try to get some insights that can be uh, generalized across categories, maybe context and so on. And in the process, you also look at the contingency factors of moderating conditions, which is also a very wonderful feature of your research. Now, I also noticed that uh, in, you are also doing that now in conjunction with the effects of advertising, and particularly you're focusing a lot on uh, FMCG, or frequently moving consumer goods or what we call CPG or consumer packaged goods in the US. Um, so are most of your uh, research focused on these because mainly because of the data or uh, are these because you are genuinely interested in these categories in per se? 
Well, it, it, it's basically a mixture of, of things. Okay. In the sense that uh, several of my research projects uh, also start with observations that I, that Correct, I yeah. have in the markets. So, and, and I observe more in that market than, than in others. So, so that, that, that's one. Uh, the second thing is, as, as you correctly mentioned, is that the data availability in that uh, domain is, is typically larger uh, or, or is, is more easily accessible than in, in some other markets. But that, that being said, I recently started to work also on, on some projects uh, where uh, we have retail scanner data on a variety of consumer durables. So oh, uh, again, okay. I, I am very excited about that project too, but given that I'm a, an applied econometric researcher, I need the data. And that's, that's also very often the driving force of where, right. where do you have the data. So what are some of the new research projects that you're working on? And I noticed that you've published a lot in the last couple of years alone and still more uh, papers are forthcoming. So tell us something uh, about what you're working on that may be exciting for you. Well, uh, one, one thing that uh, one paper that, that I recently published and that, that you're familiar with is, is on how, um, how um, retailers should brand their uh, private labels. And, and there are two, two aspects that I um, uh, have looked at there. It is first of all, what you oh, see, uh, and this is- Martin, sorry started. to interrupt you. Before you go further, just for the benefit of our viewers and listeners, uh, maybe we could unpack the private labels a little bit in here because maybe you could give an overview of the private labels versus national brands in Europe and the US. Uh, what you see are the trend. Uh, I, let me give you my own uh, observations and take is that uh, private labels share of uh, at least the CPG or the FMCG categories are growing all over the world. Uh, mm -hmm. And as you rightly mentioned earlier on during the recessions, they gain a lot of shares and they keep it up. Um, but one of the uh, interesting thing, let me just put this out in terms of uh, very, very striking examples here, the growth of private label on big retailers in the US like Amazon, uh, Walmart, for example, Amazon has multiple private labels. When I last counted, they have about 406 private label brands. Of course, Amazon Basics is the biggest one. And then they have Amazon Collection and they have Amazon Essentials. Uh, so many different uh, collections across product categories. Similarly, Walmart has great value uh, and number of other private label. Uh, and where we are, uh, we are in Texas, HEB is a very big brand. HEB has its own private label, HEB uh, regular, Hill Country. Uh, so there is a lot of excitement about private labels or store brands in the US, but I understand those are much, much higher in, the U uh, in Europe, uh, across Europe, so first of all, having laid out how this industry and the importance of private label is evolving, perhaps you can give a background about why this branding, the different umbrellas are important before you can talk about your research so that we all get a better sense. Okay, so um, for, first to, to, to put everyone a bit on, on the same playing field, what you um, in terms of uh, private label shares, what, what you do see is that they are still much higher in Europe on average than in the US. I think in the US, it will be depending on the data source that, that, that you're looking at, they will say between 20 and 25%, give, give or take one or 2%. In, in Europe, there are several countries where um, it, it's more than 40% and even already exceeding 50% which basically means that one out of two products being sold in the supermarket are no longer national brands, which is, which is really impressive. Um, so what, what are then uh, the expectations for, for the US? And is that the, there's a general feel that the US will start to become more and more like, the, like Europe in terms of the, uh, the shares, whether they will... Uh, reach the exact same level and then say reach full convergence to the European level, that's another question and that's a paper I'm working on for the moment. But if you, just uh, um, 
one of the reasons why I'm convinced that in the US it, it will rise is, is first of all, that the consumer perception is changing. It, it used to be, and that was one of the main reasons why in Europe it was higher than, than in the US, was that in Europe, private labels had a better quality perception. If you ask the European consumers, do you think the private labels are as good as the national brands? A vast majority would say yes. In the US, that was say approximately one out of two consumers. The latest figures that I have seen in, in the US is that no, already sent, uh, around 80% uh, of the US consumers are also saying that uh, the quality of private labels is as good as the quality and, and of Marta, national you, you, brands. You make an excellent point because uh, with COVID, what has happened is it's accelerated that perception of high quality of private label. A lot of people are substituting national brands for uh, the brands of Amazon, for example. Amazon has uh, exploded during this and so is Walmart. And mainly because the stockouts of national brands plus the availability of that and when consumers start experiencing, they are gravitating more towards auto ordering, if you will. So your point is very well taken, particularly this pandemic has accelerated that. Uh, also uh, another yes. striking uh, couple of uh, uh, information that I found was even Starbucks is producing uh, some of its coffee for Kirkland, which is Costco's private label, right? And Kirkland's uh, uh, private label coffee says roasted by Starbucks. So you have actually, you know, more established brands manufacturing for the private label, which actually takes it to a different level, right? Yes. Uh, and um, I, I, I wrote a paper on that, uh, on who is producing those private labels a couple of years ago. And, and, and basically uh, what, what you had is that, um, that there's of course a big chunk of the private labels being produced by say dedicated private label producers. So all they do is produce private labels. Correct. Uh, and those are typically producing at very low margins. Uh, and are squeezed out by, by the retailers. Um, then the second uh, big chunk is made by the national brand manufacturers. Uh, and they do produce that um, basically for a variety of reasons. And, and one is of course, if, they, well, if the private labels take 40%, in, like in some European countries, they have overcapacity. And so either you can just close down your factories or you can produce it for the Right. Uh, for the retailer for its private labels. But one of the, what we found was one of the key reasons why they are doing that is to then have preferential treatment from the retailer for their national brands. And the, so basically we, we do, did that in the context of the hard discounters, who as you know, uh, have very few national brands, but right. they are very attractive to, 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 to get those, those spots. And what we found Aldi, is that Lidl if you start to, so, yeah, all the little and the little is now very, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they are no uh, little is now very hot in in, in the US. And, right, they are uh, growing like uh, very fast, like crazy. And what we found is that if you start as a national brand manufacturer, if you produce the private labels for the discounters, that you have a much higher likelihood that you are one of the lucky few that is selected uh, to be offered on the shelves of that discounter. So if wow. you then take into account that the discounters in Germany have 30 or 40%, 30 to 40% of the market, that suddenly opens a whole market again, if you are able to get your product on that. But coming back a bit, Venki, to, to uh, COVID, what, what may also be one of, of, of the consequences of, um, of that COVID crisis is that the uh, uh, an evolution that was already going on and that the retailers were integrating more vertically and producing their private labels on their own. So not independent contractors, not national brand manufacturers, but basically owning the factories, uh, that this is going to accelerate. And right. the, the reason is that the, the retailers want to have more control over their supply chain. 
so that they are not dependent if suddenly there, there's a crisis outbreak, say in China, that they, they have supply uh, problems. Very good point. And I think now that you put this in context, uh, let's try and understand why should private label or store uh, retailers have different uh, tiers of private label, which is what you're looking at, right? You're looking at the types of brands yeah, I need yeah. to have. Yeah. Yeah. The, well, ba ba basically, it's, it's, it's a typical segmentation exercise in the sense that you want to reach uh, different segments of, of consumers. Uh, with, with, with some extra remarks. Uh, first of all, the, the reason why, so, so let's for the moment uh, talk about three tiers, say economy or budget, then the standard tier, and then the premium tier. Basically, the budget tier is, is introduced as a defensive weapon against the hard discounters. So they basically introduce that very cheap version of the private label in order to fight the Aldis and the Littles of this world. Um, however, there, there, there is um, evidence both in, in the business press, but also in, in, in some uh, uh, recent academic papers that this objective is, is hard to realize. So it's not really that successful. And the, the, because of that, the budget or economy private labor is also not growing anymore. Um, moreover, they have a very small margin and they cannibalize the standard private labels with, with a higher margin. So there are more and more retailers that are, without much fuss, are starting to discontinue their economy private label. Where the growth and the money is at the moment is in the premium private label, where the quality is typically higher or at least at par as with the leading national brands. They are now sometimes even more expensive than the national brands, but they are the fastest growing uh, tier. Uh, and, and why do the retailers uh, do that? First of all, because they have the highest margin. They, they have the same percentage margin as the, the standard tier, but the, given that it's applied to a higher price in terms of say dollar terms, they earn most on the, on the premium tier. Uh, but that also the, poses the a challenge, thing, Marnik, because they have to uh, also market it uh, substantially higher, right? Because they have to justify the price and uh, compete with the national brands. So how does that happen in Europe successfully? Because we don't see a lot of such premium private label here in the U.S. as much as you, you see in, the, in Europe. Yeah. No, um, the... One of the interesting things is that they basically use the premium private label as a real differentiating tool vis-a-vis uh, -vis the competing retailers, but also to attract the customers to their store. And what, what's, what's then an interesting development that you see in several European countries is that in those categories, because premium private labels you only do in, in, in a select set of categories, not across the board as with the standard one, is that in those categories where um, you, you have that premium private label, is that the retailer is also supporting the national brands more. Because they want to, suppose that you introduce uh, your premium private label, say, in, uh, in a certain, uh, say, fancy chocolate category. Then you, they, you will see that they expand also the assortment of the leading national brands in that category. That's they fascinating. Also yeah. Are, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And they basically together want, together with the national brands and their premium private label, they want to make that the destination categories where Very they nice. then uh, start to make uh, money. And then once they have created a name to do that, then they start to also alternate the promotions so that there are certain weeks where it's the premium private labels that's really in, 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 in promotion. And then during those weeks, they make a ton of money given the high margins uh, on, on those things. Very good. So they essentially behave like a national brand. Uh, at that premium private yeah. label, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and you know, one yes. of the lay people's questions would be that, gee, you know, the whole promise of private label or store brand is that it's uh, value for money. 
And uh, if you start uh, unpacking multiple layers and multiple tiers and, uh, and having multiple different brand names uh, for your own mm -hmm. private label across categories, doesn't it become very confusing for the consumer and also doesn't it become very hard for the retailer to support uh, you know, making people aware of so many different brand names? I'm just laying the context for your research. So uh, how does this all uh, play out and why do uh, retailers have so many different names to begin with? Well, the, the historically they used to have many, uh, say, different private label names for every category. So you, they had a different name for the private label in the spaghetti sauce category, another name for the chocolate category, still another name uh, for, for yet another uh, category. What you see now is that in one, first of all, that be, that that's complicated for the retailer and potentially confusing for. Uh, for the customer. What you now see is that more and more retailers, but not all, uh, but say around, I would say 60-70%, start to use what we call an umbrella brand name. And basically what they do is then combine all the different um, uh, separate private label names that individually do not have the muscle to really convey a strong message to the customer to bring that under one common one roof, name. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, once they have decided that, uh, many of the, those retailers also then attach their own uh, banner name to, to that common uh, name. So, and you see that with Tesco, you have Tesco uh, Premium, Tesco Value, Tesco, so that each time you have the Tesco name attached to it. Um, and, and the reason why they do that is because the private labels have become so strong that they carry their own equity and the retailer tries to create a, a synergy effect between the equity perception of its banner and the equity perception of, of, of its private label in order to have that, that cross-fertilization. What's interesting, however, is that they, they attach their banner name much less to the budget private label. And the reason is that these are lower quality. There is more danger coming back to a previous topic of a product harm crisis, and they don't right. want to take that risk. Um, but you're absolutely correct that this becomes much more complicated logistically for, for the retailer. Um, and um, at some point, we may see again a rationalization. Like Tesco, I, I counted uh, for, a, for a project, the number of uh, private label brands that they currently have, and they had 13 different ones, which of course um, is, is uh, rather confusing potentially to, to the customer. But uh, we'll see what the future brings here. So now lay out what you found in your umbrella branding private label research. So now that we have a broader context. Yes. Well, with, with the umbrella branding uh, paper, what we looked at is for several retailers that switched from, say, 50, 60 different names to one common brand name. Uh, and we, we, again, given that I like uh, things that are not idiosyncratic to one retailer, we had several retailers across two different countries, retailers with a different positioning, etc. And consistently we find that as the business press and the managers hope for, is that the brand strength increased. So with the brand strength, we measured that as how much sales can you, do you basically realize without promotional support, without advertising support, without, uh, with, with the price at, say, so either the baseline the sales. maximum level. Yeah, Some kind baseline of baseline sales. sales. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and what we found is that after that rebranding exercise, that the intrinsic base sales or the intrinsic brand strength of those private labels increased in each of the cases that, that, that we observed. Uh, or, or that we studied. So that basically means that uh, your, your brand becomes stronger 
if you can have a consistent message or a consistent use of that brand across different categories throughout the store, rather than spreading yourself too thin with too many different uh, brand names. However, there, there was also a, a caveat to that in the sense that the promotional effectiveness and the um, uh, effectiveness of assortment increases, so adding extra SKUs, that this became smaller, which uh, also makes sense and which is consistent with prior literature that if promotional frequency increases, that the promotional, that the effectiveness of each well individual yeah. goes down. And what you now have is you walk through the aisles, you see a promotion for coffee, for that name. You, you continue, you see a promotion for that same name in the soft drink category. And you, same thing with the assortment is that the perception of assortment variety decreases if you use the same name, same packaging, same logo, etc., across different categories throughout the store. So yes, there is a positive baseline effect, but you have to be careful that, and realize that the effectiveness of, say, an individual promotion or the effectiveness of an SKU addition becomes smaller once you have done that. That's fascinating because what you're saying is that the whole private label strategy or decision set of decisions is involving a lot of trade-offs, right? So first of all, the need to have an umbrella private label versus different brand names by categories, and then need to have multiple tiers, and also coexisting with national brands. All of this is a very intricate interplay of a lot of factors, right? And uh, so there is no one rule or one uh, strategy that might work for every retailer, right? Uh, so you could exactly. much more nuanced looks like, right? Yeah. And and for example, what we what we found is that say different strategies in terms of naming your 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 uh, private label or working with an umbrella, etc., uh, or attaching your name to it uh, differs depending on what tier you're talking about. Differs depending on um, what. Um, what retail market you're working in. It works better uh, one strategy in a concentrated market than in another. It depends on your positioning as a retailer. For example, the attaching your banner name to your private labels works better if you're a high-low retailer than if you're an EDLP retailer and so forth. So there, there are lots of different things that, that have to be taken into account, which for us as a researcher makes it all the more fascinating. Yeah. That's why I was going to say you've elevated the whole concept of private label and store brand to a, another level altogether, which is becoming very important. Now let's move, look forward a little bit. Where do you see uh, uh, the role of brands, private labels uh, uh, going in the next five to 10 years? You already mentioned that US, you expect to see a rising share of private label, but let's, let me put the context uh, in place here. You know, we have the COVID situation. A lot of consumers are moving to online shopping. Many of them are moving to, uh, you know, private label or store brands if it's acceptable to them. Many of them are auto ordering. We have all these AI and uh, automated assistants. Uh, do you think that we are reaching a situation where uh, it's going to become harder and harder for both national brand manufacturers and retailers to really successfully carve out uh, consistently higher market shares over a period of time because it's becoming more and more uh, uh, very less persuasive environment, if I were to call it, right? Yeah. No, no, that, 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 that's, that's a very good um, question. And this is one where, where I basically need to do a lot of speculation. Uh, and okay. just last week, I, I, I sent in a, a review paper um, to the Journal of Retailing on that multi-tiered um, offering and the impact of COVID and so forth. And there are a lot of basically moving targets uh, going on. And for example, the, it's more and more consumers are now starting to buy online. We know that because of COVID. However, 
we basically don't know, we know almost nothing in the academic field about the, the interface between private labor buying and online buying. And yes, Amazon is really uh, shaking up that, that, that whole dominating it. And because of that, you will see a big increase in uh, private labor shares on, uh, sales online. That, that, that's one. Uh, two, we, we have the COVID And to your point, Marnik, sorry to interrupt. To your point, I, I believe Amazon no. Basics, uh, Amazon Basics uh, in the battery uh, has become the largest, single largest manufacturer and, and brand. So that is fascinating to observe. If it can happen in one category, it could happen in multiple categories, right? Yes. Plus also, if you saw a couple of years back, uh, Amazon was already um, selling multiple brands, which were actually private labels, but yeah. they, it was not really put to the fore. And then they started putting arrows. This is a private label. This is a private label. So that basically they were using that as their selling proposition. Um, however, what coming back to COVID, um, consumers may also look for trust. And so it's unclear yet whether they will go back to the trusted national brands or whether the retailer brands have already created enough trust, have trust already them, created yeah. enough long-lasting persistent equity in order to, to overcome that. Um, so so, so that, that's a bit uh, uh, difficult to predict. What you also will, will what's is something that, that, that really fascinates me now is given that I think we, we, we are heading for a big recession, is that you would expect that the, the, the budget private label, which was stagnating, may actually get a boost again because well, they are the really cheapest at still acceptable quality. Not top quality, but acceptable quality. But on the other hand, and this is something that we have for the first time, and which, is where, which makes the COVID crisis very different from say the traditional ones, is that customers also feel isolated. They uh, need to have a connection that because of that, they may want to, if they have to stay at home, they may, want to indulge in something good, something special, which yeah. would basically then tell that the premium private label will be the one uh, that, that, that will so benefit. Could, be, benefits. could it be depending on categories? For some categories, they might indulge, like to indulge, like chocolates, they might want to have a premium yeah. one. But maybe for ketchups and uh, uh, very, uh, you know, spaghetti sauces, they could go in yeah. for maybe lower yeah. uh, or the economy private label. You, you think that might happen? Yes. Yeah, I think that will happen. And um, if you look in what categories that the retailers tend to introduce the, uh, the premium private label, it's, it's in the hedonic categories uh, and things like that, not in the utilitarian categories. Good, yeah. so, so, and what will be interesting to tease out is what will be driven by, by say, demand factors that the customer uh, has a need for to indulge, uh, uh, has, or, or the consumer is driven more by budgetary constraints. So two opposing factors there. Very, very but will also be driven to a large by the supply side factors. Where will the, the, the retailer uh, put, put their money? And, and, and then just another supply side factor that, that, that comes to mind is when I talk with, with uh, people in, in uh, in industry in Europe now is that they start to notice that gradually the retailers are using also the COVID crisis to reduce the number of national brand SKUs um, and replace it with their private label SKUs, claiming, and I don't know, I haven't researched it yet, but claiming that this is because of supply side considerations, but some industry observers think that this may also be inspired by this is an opportunity given that some national brand manufacturers do have supply shortages, yeah. Uh, issues. Yeah. yeah. So and this, again, this, this is this excellent uh, projections, Marnik. And, uh, you know, we have a little bit of time left. In the limited time, I would like you to think about some, what would be your best advice or best suggestions for, we have a wide variety of audience, students, uh, former students, entrepreneurs, managers, 
some administration public policy officials. So what would be some of the things that you would recommend or suggest them for them to look going forward in these areas that we talked about? Okay, uh, say starting with, with students, doctoral students, research right. master students, I, I think um, even though these are very difficult times, these are also very fascinating times. Uh, several of the domains that we might, might have felt are fairly saturated are suddenly shaken up. And so there are tons of new uh, research opportunities. Uh, second thing for the students is to always keep in mind is that it's important to have fun with your research. So to always pick things that, that, that are fun. In terms of, say, for, for the, the managers in, in, in the audience, um, I, I think um, we, we, we can refer to, to, the, to the Chinese uh, word for crisis, uh, the symbols for crisis. It's a crisis and it's an opportunity. Okay, so yes, uh, there are difficult times ahead and, and some industries will be affected uh, tremendously but there are also some opportunities. And that, that was one of the key findings that I always, or that I also had in my previous uh, business cycle research, is that as an individual manager, you cannot stop an economic recession. It happens, but depending on what you are doing, uh, you can, you can learn from it considerably yeah. how much you're, 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 you're being affected. And, and Yes, there are a lot of unknowns, but there is also a lot of research available that can help uh, managers in, in, in those decisions. Excellent. So on that note, I'm going to thank you uh, because it's been fascinating always uh, discussing your research and your findings. And uh, I always uh, enjoy uh, the generalizability and the interesting angles that you bring to the research. And I'm sure all the viewers and listeners would have benefited from listening to you on this. Thank you very much again, Marnik, and wish you good luck with your future research and hope you can continue to inform us with your insights moving forward. Thank you again.